Okay, so over the summer, we are looking at the patriarchs and matriarchs, uh, the forefathers, foremothers, if there's such a thing, forefathers and mothers of the Jewish people. And today we're going to look again at Abraham. And of course, when it comes to Abraham, Abraham's not just the forefather of the Jewish people, is he? Okay, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam, all three of the great worldwide religions look to Abraham as their forefather, as their forebear. Okay, just think about that. Think about the numbers of people in those three religions. That means whether they realize it or not, literally billions of people around the globe, even today, are in some way taking their cue for life from this man, Abraham. And today we are going to look at an episode in his life of which one commentator says, no event of Abraham's life surpasses this one in importance. In other words, in the life of this man, a man whose life continues to impact billions of people around the globe, this, this event that Melissa read to us, this event is the one that defines him. But I want, what I want you to see is, if you look closely at this episode, Abraham is wrestling with something that all of us face, whether it's on a, on a daily basis or in crisis moments. And it's doubt. Whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, whether you have been a Christian for years or whether you are investigating the faith, whether it is that nagging uncertainty at the back of your mind or whether it's that crisis of faith, whether it's the question, if you're investigating Christianity, should, should I actually believe this? Or if you're already a Christian, am I a fool to have been believing this? All of us, at one time or another, face doubt. And what this passage tells us that we're looking at this morning is so did Abraham. And he's the guy that the Bible calls the man of faith and the father of faith. So, because today is Graham's last Sunday, we're going to look at three things. <laughs> we are going to look at the roots of doubt, the faces of doubt, and the answer to doubt. Okay, first one then, the roots of doubt. Look at verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, in the Bible, whenever God or a heavenly being, an angelic being, appears to someone, and says, tells them, fear not, you can bet your bottom dollar that if they didn't have reasons to be afraid before, they sure have reasons to be afraid now, don't they? Okay, so what's Abraham afraid of? What's up with him? Why is Abram feeling that cold chill of fear so that God has to come to him and tell him, you don't need to fear? Okay, well, look at it. Those words, after these things, give us a clue, don't they? Something has happened to Abraham just before this episode that is making him fearful. 
And if you look back in chapter 14, it tells us what it is. And what it is might surprise you because it is a stunning victory. That's what's just happened to him. He's experienced an incredible victory. You see, Abraham is living in something of a war zone. There are running battles being fought by the various local chieftains. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, who is living in Sodom, has been taken captive, along with his family, along with a whole load of other people, and along with a whole load of the possessions, the wealth, the, the booty, the bounty, the, you know, all the stuff of Sodom. And so under the cover of darkness, like something out of an SAS or a US Navy SEALs covert operation, Abraham leads a military mission to rescue them. And he succeeds and he defeats them and he rescues the people and he brings back all the possessions. And what chapter 14 describes is that military victory but not just a military victory, but a moral one. Because when the king of Sodom, whose people and stuff has been taken, comes to thank Abram, the king of Sodom says to him effectively, look, Abram, I will take my people, but you can keep all the stuff. You can keep all of the possessions as a thank you. That would have been a seriously tempting offer, wouldn't it? Okay, imagine if that was you. And suddenly you've got the wealth, wealth of a city being offered to you. I mean, think what you could do with that. Think of all that stuff that you wish you could buy. I mean, you could have your new Tesla, couldn't you? Or whatever it is you're, you're longing for. Think what you could do with all the gold and silver. Think how you would never have to worry about your future quite as much because, hey, your bank balance is up here. And after all, Abraham's risked his life, hasn't he? And his men's life to bring this rescue about. So it's only appropriate that he should be rewarded for this. He's taken a risk, he gets the reward. And yet Abraham replies to the king of Sodom, no, God is my provider. And I'm not gonna have you, king of Sodom, saying uh, I made Abraham rich. So thank you very much, but you can take your people and you can take all of your stuff. A stunning military victory and a great moral victory are behind him. What is Abraham now experiencing in his heart that makes God come to him and say, fear not, Abraham? What is it? It's what often comes after a mountaintop experience, isn't it? It's that crash into the valley. And if you've experienced great moments of faith or courage or victory or just feeling great about life, they can so often be followed by that slump into doubt and fear and temptation and despair. And if you've ever experienced that, and I suspect most of us have, Sue and I were talking to somebody only yesterday who has experienced something like that. If you have, you are not alone. Think about Elijah, the great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. He has just secured his greatest victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 
and seeing God's power demonstrated in extraordinary ways. And yet, literally, within hours, he is in a pit of depression. He feels utterly alone. He feels as if he is against the world and that he would be better off dead. Or think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has led hundreds, if not thousands, to repentance. He has prepared the way for the Messiah. He is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, as Jesus would say. But now he's in prison, and he sends some friends to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Or have I backed a loser? Have I, have I been wasting my time on this? Well, think about the Lord Jesus himself, who at his baptism hears the voice of God telling him, Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But in the very next chapter, literally, I think it's three verses later, he is, in, he is alone in the desert. And Matthew tells us, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God. And doubt is being sown in his mind and his thinking. You see, the hard times of life, they have their own kinds of trials and temptations, don't they? But so too do the times of victory. So too do the great times, the times of triumph. And one of those times is the post-victory slump that can follow. And Abraham has been in a battle, and the adrenaline is sky high, and his emotional energy and tension and psychological stress are high. But what follows is a doubt-filled low. And what God says to him tells us why, what it is that's going on in his heart. Verse one again. <coughs> Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Abram has just inflicted a defeat on these local chieftains. But what he's now doing is lying in his bed at night in his sleeping bag. And he's thinking to himself, okay, but what next? Okay, I've just defeated these guys, but are they, are they just going to lie down and take that? Or are they going to come after me with even more men? and get their vengeance. And what about the king of Sodom? You know, I've just, said, I've just said no to him, but is he gonna start seeing me as a threat? And so Abram is beginning to feel vulnerable. He's beginning to feel at risk and exposed. Sure, he has won a victory, but now the fears and the doubts are beginning to race in. And he's thinking, sure, I protected and rescued Lot, but who's going to protect me? Okay, there's something else going on as well there, isn't there? Because it's not just the king of Sodom he said no to. He's also said no to the financial security and the recognition and the reputation that would have come if he, to his way if he had kept all of that wealth, all of that gold, all of that silver. And as he's lying there in his tent, he's playing this over in his mind. Have I just done something really stupid? In saying no to the bounty and the loot and the money, 
Have I just turned my back on the very thing that would have made me someone, that would have made me something? What's Abraham questioning? He's questioning, what's my shield and what's my reward? What security do I have? What does my life consist of? What would you answer to that? What's your shield? What's your reward? Because we've all got a shield and a reward, haven't we? We're all looking to something as our shield and our reward. Something that tells us we're going to be okay, our shield. So something that protects us, future secure. And something that tells us that we are okay. Could be your job, could be your family, could be your financial status, could be your reputation, could be your looks. I'm sure that's what mine is. Okay, it could be your level of fitness. I'm sure that's what mine isn't. Okay, it could be any of those things. Things that tell you all the time that I have this, I'm okay, the future's gonna be okay. It could be the experiences that you are notching up. You know, all those cool places you are visiting that tells you you're doing okay. Could be, again, your reputation with others. It could be your research output. Those things that tell you, I am doing okay, I am okay, I am someone, I'm becoming someone. Okay, whatever it is, something or someone is going to be your shield and your reward. Okay, but what happens when those things are shaken and you begin to realize they are not quite as secure as you were thinking they were? Because that's what, that's what Abraham's sensing, isn't it? He's beginning to feel vulnerable. And you be, when your shield and your reward begin to look a bit shaky, you start to feel vulnerable because you realize that what you've been looking to as your shield and your reward are in fact no shield and no real reward. And so the Lord comes to Abraham and says, Abram, I'm your shield. I'm your shield. And some translations put it, and Abram, I am your very great reward. Abram, how can you know that you are going to be okay? How can you know that you are okay? Abram, look to me. Okay, but did you notice how Abraham responds to that? Because he doubts. He questions, verses two and three. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Now, to understand the depth of Abram's anguish, okay, look back at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Okay, so Abram is not experiencing what you and I might experience. He's not experiencing some vague impression that this might somehow be the Lord speaking to him. It's not even that he's read something or heard someone else say something and he's thinking, wow, the Lord just spoke to me through that. That expression, the word of the Lord came, it occurs nowhere else than in this chapter, in the rest of the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. 
but it is used repeatedly, multiple times, in the prophets to describe what the prophets experienced. The tangible word of God coming to them, visions of the Almighty. So when we are told in verse 1 that this was a vision, whatever form it took, this was a revelation of God to Abraham, of God himself to Abraham. And in the face of that, in the face of God, with the word of God ringing in his ears, Abram says, great, sure, sure you're my shield, sure you're my great, very great reward, but what good is that if I am childless? I mean, you make all these promises, but they're meaningless. Just look at the circumstances of my life. What good is an inheritance if I have no children to inherit it? I wonder if you know something of what Abraham's going through. You hear or you read something about God being your security and your identity. We talk about it enough here. And you think, sure, but what use is that when I'm single and I feel alone? What use is that when my marriage is hurting? What use is that when my kids are making bad choices or my work sucks or my health is threatened? What good is that when with Abraham, the circumstances of our lives seem at odds with the promises of God? It's a fertile ground for doubt, isn't it? Okay, but this episode doesn't just tell us what the roots of doubt are. It tells us the shape that doubt, the shapes, plural, that doubt can take. Okay, second point then, the faces of doubt. Because there are two here. Abraham's doubt has two faces. Firstly, he doubts God. Verse two again. What will you give me for I continue childless? I mean, you've made these great promises. You've said you're going to give me an inheritance. You've said that from me, a great nation is going to come. But I don't even have a child, let alone a great nation. So where's the making good on the promises? What's he doubting? He's doubting God's truthfulness. He's doubting God's goodness. Do you actually care? He's doubting God's ability. Can you really give me and Sarah in our old age and with years of infertility behind us a child? He's doubting God's timing because Abraham wants a son now. You see, last week we saw how God told Abraham to leave his homeland and go to another land. And, it's if, and we saw how it's as if in response to the question, Yep, I'll go. Where do you want me to go? God says, I'll show you when you get there. And now here, God is saying, I will give you a son. And Abraham's saying, yep, when? And God says, when I give you one. I'll give you a son when I give you one. Okay, maybe you know what that feels like as well. Okay, when the Lord is taking or seemingly taking too long to come through for you and you begin to doubt whether he ever will so he's doubting god but there's a second person he is doubting the second face of doubt and that is he's doubting himself 
Okay, the Lord promises to give Abraham the land in verse 8. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, you could see that as Abraham just asking for clarification. How, how do I know that you're going to come through for me on that, God? Except think how this works in your own heart. Because I think there's a, something else going on here. Think how it works in your own heart. It's not just God that you struggle to trust, is it? Okay, we also struggle to trust ourselves. Okay, maybe you've seen yourself stumble in the face of this temptation once too often. And you know how at risk you are. You don't trust yourself. Or maybe you see your own character flaws all too clearly. And you can see this situation coming. And you know how you should respond. But you are thinking, like Abraham, yeah, but how can I know that I can do this? How can I know that this time it's going to be different? How can I know that this time I'm not going to screw up? God, I don't trust myself. You see, it's not just his circumstances that Abraham is facing. It's his own powerlessness. It's his own weakness. If you think about it, that was something that never bothered the apostle Peter until it did. Okay, Jesus warned his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, you are all going to desert me and deny me. How does Peter respond? Not me. They all might. But I know myself. Okay, that everyone else might do that, but I never will. And within hours, he had denied Jesus three times. Why? Because he'd failed to reckon with his own powerlessness because he trusted in himself too much, because he thought, I know myself, and he didn't know himself at all. Compare that to the father who came to Jesus asking for help for his child, and who Jesus asks, do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? To which the father replied, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because like Abraham, he did know himself, unlike Peter. Unlike Peter, he didn't trust himself. Help my unbelief. Now, what are you supposed to do with those kinds of doubts? Doubts about God, doubts about yourself. Doubts rooted in fear and the circumstances of life that shows itself in a distrust of God. And doubts about ourselves. What are we supposed to do with that? Last point then. The answer to doubt. The answer to doubt. Now, um, I think one of the remarkable things about this episode is that there is not a word of criticism from God towards Abraham for his doubt. Okay, com commenting on this passage, John Calvin, the great reformer, asks, he basically asks in his commentary, how on earth does Abram get away with this? Because basically, he is disparaging God's promise of protection and provision. And Calvin asks, isn't that just a basic lack of reverence? Basic lack of respect? Shouldn't he just be zapped? And yet what Calvin points out is that God does not go, how dare you? And neither, we might add, 
Does he go, you know, you are so right to doubt. Doubt's a virtue. Doubt's, you, you can't be sure of anything in this life. We should all be doubting. God doesn't respond like that either. Instead, Calvin says two things. Firstly, the Lord permits us to pour into his heart those cares by which we are tormented and those troubles with which we are oppressed. In other words, God wants and is big enough to take the full weight of Abraham's doubt and our doubt, and he meets Abraham where he is. But secondly, Calvin says, because Abraham is asking for a pledge, a promise about the promise, God gives it. Okay, look at verse four. Abraham has said, you know, what good is an inheritance if a servant gets to inherit and not a son? And then verse four, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then it's, there's this incredibly tender moment because it's as if God walks into Abraham's tent, takes him by the hand, says, come on, come out, come, come outside, get, get out your sleeping bag. Come on, I want, I want to show you something. And if you have ever looked at the night sky in an area where there is no ambient light, okay, you know something of what Abraham saw. As God says to him, verse five, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them so shall your offspring be. And in response to Abraham's doubts, God is giving him his words. First thing he gives him, Abram, I've promised you offspring, and I promise that I will keep my promise. And verse six, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that is a verse that rings throughout the New Testament. Because as Paul says in Romans 4, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope. And in that moment, as God stood beside him, showed him the heavens, Abraham believed that God's word was more to be trusted, that it was more real, that it was more authoritative for his life than his circumstances, than his age, or Sarah's age, or all their years of infertility, or the threats of others. And as Paul goes on to say, in that moment, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He knew that he, Abraham, could not do it. But he knew now, God, you can do it and you will do it. God can and will protect me and provide for me. And God can and will bring life out of death and hope out of hopelessness. And God counted that faith in him as righteousness. And that, Paul says, wasn't just written for or about Abraham. It was written for us, Romans 4, 23 to 25. 
But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so just as when Abram believed God more than his circumstances, when what he could not yet see was more real to him than what he could see, so when you and I put our trust in God and what he has done for us in Christ, rather than in ourselves, rather than in our circumstances, Paul is saying that too is counted to us as righteousness. When you put your faith in Christ and what he has done for you, and not what you do, not all your good works, but what he has done for you, God looks on you and says, because you trust in my son and not in yourself, your sin is atoned for. All of your guilt, all of that stuff that you are ashamed of is washed away. You're forgiven. Your past is dealt with. And I accept you. You are okay. You've been made right with me. Now, you might respond to that. Great. But why should I believe that? Well, look at what God does next. Because he doesn't just give his word to Abram. He gives him himself. He promises to give him himself. Verse 8. Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I should possess it, the land? How do I know that I can really take possession of this land? And God tells him to bring him a heifer and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And without any further explanation, Abraham seems to know exactly what he's got to do. And he cuts the big animals in half and he places them half against half against each other. What is he doing? It's like a butcher's shop. Okay, what's he doing? Okay, when you take up a job offer or you buy a house like the cooks have just done or you buy a new car, what do you do? You sign a contract, don't you? And your signature as you sign that is a proof that you will do what you're promising to do. You're gonna pay the money, you're gonna fulfill your side of the contract, you're gonna provide the goods. And if you don't, you know, what you're signing is, I've read the small print and I know what will happen if I don't fulfill my side of the deal. You sign a contract. In Abraham's day, they didn't sign a contract, they cut a covenant. And each party to the covenant would walk through the cut pieces of these sacrificial animals and they were saying, let this be done to me if I do not keep this covenant. Let me be cut in pieces. Let my blood be spilled. Let me experience a certain agonizing death if I do not fulfill my side of this agreement. Imagine if the HR department asked you to do that the next time you sign a job contract. Mrs. Smith from the HR department emails you and says, could you please bring your cow to the car park at 9 a.m. and we're going to cut the deal together. That would sure make you think about turning up on time to work, wouldn't it? Okay, let this happen to me. Okay, but before anyone goes through the pieces, the cut pieces, 
God tells Abraham that it is going to be hundreds of years before the promise of inheriting the land is fulfilled. And he tells Abraham why. Firstly, his descendants, the people of Israel, are going to be enslaved in Egypt. And secondly, because the sins of the people currently in the land, the Amorites, have not yet reached the limit where God is going to act in judgment. What's that got to do with your doubts? I think it's this. It is that God always has his timing. And Abraham wants the land now. And God is saying, not yet, Abraham. And I have my reasons. And they are reasons of justice and mercy. They're reasons in your life and your descendants' lives. And there are reasons in other people's lives. And you and I, we may have no idea why God is taking his time in coming through for you. But whether it's his work in your life or his work in other people's lives, God always has his reasons. Okay, but having explained his timing, the sun goes down and it becomes very dark. And instead of Abraham walking through the cut pieces alone, which is what would normally have happened when a covenant was made between a greater person and a, and a lesser person, and instead of Abraham and God both walking through the pieces, as would have happened if there were sort of two equals making a covenant together, Abraham watches as verse 17, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch Pass between the pieces. You know, whether it was God descending on Mount Sinai in smoke and fire, or whether it was God leading the people of Israel through the desert by a pillar of cloud, a pillar of smoke by day, or fire by night, smoke and fire together are the signs of God's presence in the Old Testament. And like some piece of ultra-radioactive material that is glowing and sparking and burning and smoking, it is as if God condenses the fire and the smoke of his divine presence into a burning cauldron. And he says, Abraham, look, it's me, and it's only me who passes through the pieces let this, be done, let this be done to me if I fail to keep my word to you. And let this be done to me if you, Abraham, fail to keep your word to me. Let me be cut in pieces. Let my blood be spilt. Let me suffer a certain agonizing death. Let the curse of this fall on me. If you, Abraham, fail to keep this covenant, Abraham, it doesn't depend on you at all. It doesn't depend on, on what you're doing. It doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on your power. It doesn't depend on you at all, Abraham. This stands or falls on me, Abraham, and I will never let you down. What's that got to do with you? What's that got to do with your doubts about God or about yourself? This morning I want you to look 
at what happens to Christ on the cross. Because we're told that here, verse 12, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. And at the cross, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon Christ. So great and dark that the sun was blotted out. And here God acts out what would happen to him if Abraham fails to keep the covenant. At the cross, Jesus doesn't just act it out. Jesus goes through with it. And the curse of the covenant falls on him. And his blood was spilt. And as the prophet Isaiah says, the curse of the covenant falls on him and he was cut off from the land of the living. As Daniel says, the prince, the anointed one, is cut off. And the judgment that God says will fall upon him falls upon his son. And not for his failure, but for ours. And so at the cross, God is saying, your protection and your future, your salvation, does not depend on you at all. It doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on Christ. And you are so right not to trust yourself. But you're not supposed to trust yourself. But you can trust Christ. Because as we're going to act out in a moment as we take communion together, if Jesus was cut off for you, if he was cut into pieces for you, if his blood was shed for you, if he died a certain and agonizing death, if he went through that for you, because he loves you so much, you can trust his plans and you can trust his purposes for you and you can trust his timing and you can trust his love because he is your shield and he is your very great reward and he will never let you down. Let's pray.